welcome to another episode of this week in IPNO. We are, of course, as always, live from the couch in my living room. Today, we have a special guest. It is Vicente Gracias, who is the Vice President of Health Affairs for Rutgers, the Senior Vice Chancellor for Clinical Affairs at RBHS, and the Chief Academic Officer of Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health. Thank you for joining us today. Clearly, by the titles, you are very clearly uh, clear, very clearly a busy man. So, uh, thanks for taking the time and uh, talking to us for a little bit. Well, Paul, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm only as busy as everybody else around Rutgers. So, unfortunately, there's no place to hide here. Uh, and since everyone leads by example, I don't think anybody sleeps at Rutgers these days. Yeah. Um, so, just to get started and to kind of get everyone who's listening familiar with who you are and what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis and what your career has looked like over the years? Sure. I, um, I'll try to be brief because it's, it's kind of boring unless you're the one living that life. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, well, I think it's important for everyone to know that I was born in Madrid, um, lived in North Africa for a little bit of time. And then my first taste of American life was Detroit. Uh, 10 Mile and Gratiot. And maybe you guys may not remember, but Eminem had a movie out called Eight Mile. Um, so that gives you a little bit of background of where I started in America. Um, but as, a, as an immigrant, um, it was, uh, there was no plan B. You either work hard, try to prove your value to the society, um, or you're back to whatever country you decided to come from. And in many ways, that's really emulated my entire career. Um, it is about working as hard as I can possibly work um, to prove my value to this country, to this society. Um, but as that career advanced, I realized that um, there's a lot of people with an enormous amount of value um, that didn't have the ability or the chance that I did to be able to prove myself. Um, so early on in my career, my, I was very lucky. My, my father's a physician, my grandfather's, well, my grandfather's a surgeon, my father's a surgeon, my twin brother's a surgeon, my sister's a surgeon, and, now I, and I was a surgeon. So for about 25 years, I went through the process of going to Notre Dame undergrad uh, and then uh, medical school, surgery school or surgery residency, and then ultimately um, practiced trauma surgery and surgical critical care. Uh, for about 25 years or so. Um, and at that point, um, I decided that uh, there was an opportunity in New Jersey to help build the trauma centers in New Jersey um, that were having a lot of issues at Robert Wood Johnson with one of the level one trauma centers in the state. And there's three level one trauma centers that take care of the 9 million lives, 10 million lives we have in New Jersey. And I was at Penn at the time. They asked me to come over and take a look at it. Um, when I came over to New, and I've lived in New Jersey um, for over 20 years, I used to make a left to go to Penn, and now I make a right to go to, to Rutgers. Um, I took a look at Robert Wood Johnson, and there was an enormous need there. But I also saw a true potential. This was more than um, 11 years ago now. Um, what I saw was an enormously uh, conscientious community, uh, but a university that was really struggling to try to find its identity. Um, you know, I, I came because uh, it needed help. And, uh, and it needed help to try to make sure that um, it was still taking care of all the patients through trauma and critical care. And that's why I came. I started the uh, first pediatric trauma center in New Jersey. 
Um, I built and rebuilt the trauma and critical care service lines with uh, many talented people, both at Robert Johnson Medical School and at the Robert Johnson University Hospital. Um, because of that, and Rutgers tends to do this, if you're successful, they just reward you with more work. Um, when Dr. Barchi showed up and, uh, and decided to really take this um, university to where it belonged, which is a Big Ten university, and Brian Strom, who's the chancellor of Rutgers Biomedical Health Sciences, when they came uh, to really help Rutgers seize its true opportunity and destiny um, as a public university, world-class research university, and world-class education um, engine for this state and for the country, um, they took it to the next level. And uh, they asked me to be Dean of the Robert Johnson Medical School. I served that as interim Dean for almost two years. And then I was asked to uh, join um, Chancellor Strom in the chancellorship where I became the senior vice chancellor. And we started looking at uh, the uh, organization of Rutgers and what we could do to really make the health part of Rutgers University organized and grow. And at that point, we established the health affairs office at the Rutgers side of um, the uh, overall university process and uh, student health, occupational health, um, and other components that um, were traditionally part of the overall university uh, was introduced to a couple other individuals named Brian Strom and Vince Grassi. And together with the leadership uh, at Rutgers that had run all of this for decades, we began organizing it together across the entire university. Um, and that allowed me as, um, as one of the focal points to begin to see how we could best address health needs across the university. That includes Rutgers Biomedical Health Sciences. It includes um, social work, applied psychology, um, and all the medical schools, dental schools, pharmacy schools, nursing schools. I don't wanna miss anybody in school of health professions and many, many others that are now organized together uh, as one voice. The first time that Rutgers Health was established um, and as my career has changed, it's really about giving voice to everyone that really manages patients and learners together. Um, I've been very lucky to work at a university that in my life is malleable. Many people don't get that uh, opportunity. Rutgers is enormous, the largest land grant university in the country. Um, and during these times that over the last 10 years or so, it's become incredibly malleable because it wants to seize its destiny. And I've been lucky enough to be a part of that. Um, the education side or health education side of what I do academically also reports to me. So over the last several years, um, with the help of the president, the chancellors, uh, and many talented people, we have been able to organize the clinical side in a much more effective approach so that we're all working together and the education side so that we're all organizing to deliver much more of an interprofessional approach a interprofessional um, uh, organization that allows all the learners um, to be taught in a very different way than we were traditionally taught in the past, where it's a team-based approach and everyone is very interested in what are the best outcomes for the patients. So at this point, um, I helm the clinical learning environment for Rutgers University, and I've been very lucky enough to uh, also um, be involved in our response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So a little bit about me from surgeon to unfortunately administrator, which a lot of people like to call that to me. I used to think it was an insult till I realized just how hard people work on the administrative side. Um, and it's been just an absolute pleasure to grow and to learn 
um, as Rutgers has also ascended to just an unbelievable uh, place in, across the United States. Um, and I've been lucky enough to also be a part of the Big Ten um, Infectious Disease Committee that was set up to um, inform and educate the Big Ten uh, football consortia um, during this pandemic as well. I guess that's enough. Wow. So, I mean, you mentioned that there aren't a lot of people who get much sleep around Rutgers, but something tells me you get a little bit less than most of us. So uh, that was a very impressive background. And um, I think to switch gears a little bit here, uh, starting to talk a little bit about the pandemic uh, and the vaccine, uh, the vaccine rollout in New Jersey started at UH uh, up in Newark. And uh, we're just wondering, did you have any role in the logistics of that? And uh, if so, could you talk a little bit about what that process was like? Sure. Well, you know, I'm just one of many, many people that have helped us um, defend and begin to vaccinate for this pandemic. So this has been going on for more than uh, 12 months for me now, um, and it'll continue. In terms of the UH rollout, a lot of what we did through the clinical affairs offices um, was prepare the um, registration of our own employees, students, and everyone that wanted to be vaccinated. Since the vaccines are under a emergency use authorization, there is no mandate that everyone is required to be vaccinated. Um, we needed to create a process where every employee um, that was eligible to be vaccinated had an opportunity to register and to then volunteer to be vaccinated. So clinical affairs started by creating databases with uh, REHS, uh, in order to be able to survey everyone that was part of the tiering of vaccines, tier one, tier two, and tier three. And we're all hearing about that now as we sub, as we look at who's in 1A and 1B as the, the state tells us who we can vaccinate. Um, every time that broadens, those people need to be registered. Before the New Jersey state had a registration site that opened up um, just a little bit ago, uh, Rutgers already through clinical affairs and the help of Rutgers uh, University and REHS, we developed our own database, we developed our own survey, and we surveyed our own community to make sure that we captured everyone that qualified for a vaccine and that wanted to be vaccinated. All that information was then shared with University Hospital. Um, the relationship between University Hospital and NJMS um, is robust. Um, it's been together in a partnership for decades. And uh, we were able to, with the help of the clinical affairs offices in New Jersey Medical School and the leadership of University Hospital to quite rapidly uh, establish the vaccination clinics there at University Hospital. We had the databases that we needed in order to consent everyone properly because this requires an enormous amount of complex paperwork that has to go all the way back to the manufacturers and to the federal government. Uh, and then we started rolling out the vaccination um, clinics at UH. Um, everyone thinks about the last four feet of, of vaccination, which is where you see a syringe and someone walks to you about four feet away and then sticks a needle in your arm. Very important. They have to be trained, they have to be educated, and they got to make your mark and hit your arm instead of someplace else. Um, but there's a lot of work behind the scenes in order to get that vaccine into the hands of the people that can vaccinate you. And these vaccines um, were incredibly complex. Logistically, they require what we call ultra cold chain storage. Um, these vaccines are stored at between minus 80 and minus 97 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. 
and those are not common um, uh, logistical equipment that everybody has. You working with the health systems and particularly in this point, um, UH early on and Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health, um, we were able to use their um, cold chain and ultra cold chain ability uh, to begin to vaccinate. And UH um, and its pharmacy and the school did a fantastic job of coordinating in Newark uh, to begin vaccinating, but also to move the vaccines from the manufacturers into the hands of the individuals that could then vaccinate our community. So as you were mentioning, um, obviously the COVID vaccine is very unique uh, in terms of the fact that it was uh, developed in a in a sort of a record time, and it's the first RNA-based vac RNA vaccine, um, which maybe has made some people skeptical. Can you tell us some about some of the science behind the vaccine and what you would say to alleviate people's concerns? Uh, that's a fantastic question, Rich. Uh, and I think it's probably the one that's most pressing on everyone's minds. So um, let's just concentrate, if you don't mind, because there's a lot of vaccine candidates that are working its way through phase one, phase two, and ultimately phase three trials. So they work their way from bench to animal research and then to human exposure. So uh, Pfizer and Moderna, which are the two that are most uh, relevant at this point, uh, Johnson & Johnson's also by the end of January, as we move uh, into February, the data is starting to come out now. So there'll be another a third vaccine very quickly. Um, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are messenger RNA based. So this is a platform that has been used in the past, not across the entire globe, because we have to vaccinate you know, the entire world for this pandemic. But it, it has been used in the past on Zika and a few other um, infectious diseases. The messenger RNA vaccine does not touch the human DNA in any way. Um, it's a little protein that gets injected into your system just to try to make this, to illustrate it a little bit uh, more clearly and simply. And then that little protein does go into our cell and creates the spike protein called, that everyone understands when you see a picture of the coronavirus, those little spike proteins that everyone sees that are around that little ball that is common and, and, and probably every cover of every magazine when you see the word coronavirus. That gets made for a temporary period of time on our cells and our immune system um, reacts incredibly well to that. So we put in a little signal in the cell, it creates a little flag, our body sees it and says, wow, that's not mine, that belongs to the enemy and it starts creating an immune response with antibodies and other ways that our body uh, fights off foreign material, and then it disappears. But that immunogenic response, the immune system is so triggered by the messenger RNA that we are seeing the effectiveness of these vaccines jump to levels that um, we really haven't had before, uh, greater than 90%, 94.5, 95% effective, which means if you get the injections appropriately, there's a 95% chance that uh, COVID-19 and many of its variants right now, we're starting to understand um, you are protected from this. So then um, why not take it? It really has to do with the fear of the unknown. What everyone always talks about is what's the long-term results? And we honestly don't know. We don't know what will happen to you two years from now, five years from now, or 10 years from now. 
Um, and that has cast a shadow across um, the concerns that people have legitimately in terms of the safety of the vaccines. But what I can tell you is that they seem to be incredibly safe. Um, what we do know about long-term results is that when we have a new technological advancement, and I use this example all the time, you know, when the iPhone came out, we didn't have any long-term results in terms of what that would happen if you put that iPhone in your ear. You know, we don't know, but everyone went out and bought an iPhone because you need an iPhone or you need some other type of cell phone as that technology improved to keep up. Um, the same thing with caffeine drinks, all sorts of colas come out all the time. There is no long-term data about, you know, the latest hyper-caffeinated drink that all the kids are drinking in college or in sports to try to keep going. And yet everyone goes to the store and buys them while we wait to see. In this particular case with vaccines, I just wanted to illustrate that long-term results aren't always something people concentrate on. But when you look at the small, tiny risk based on all the studies that have been done, to date in terms of what could happen, and it's all hypothetical, what we do know what's happening in the world right now is that more than 2 million people have died. And the risk to us from this virus now is much, much greater than any possible long-term risk associated with these vaccinations. We believe, and that's not just me, but scientists that have dedicated their lives to studying these vaccines. And we're very lucky at Rutgers that not only are we reading the scientific information from around the world, but we're generating a lot of that information. The intellectual property that helped develop the ability to detect this virus, the saliva tests that were developed here, um, the experts in our laboratories that um, a lot of the intellectual property and all of these detections are coming from the experts of Rutgers who understand this virus very, very well. And they believe these vaccines are safe. So I'm giving you ultimately the opinion of everyone at Rutgers that we have access to and the global experts that say the tiny, tiny, tiny risk of a long-term side effect is far outweighed by getting everyone vaccinated so that people can stop dying. And since Rutgers really represents not just the entire community, but also the community of the people that are being hit the hardest by COVID-19, we need to vaccinate ourselves. And this is a trust issue. Um, we believe in science. Rutgers University is now one of the most potent public research universities in the world. And because of the science that we generate, we know that we can trust that science, we teach that science, and I want everyone to understand that I would not be saying that I think it's safe if that science didn't back up the opinions of all the scientists at Rutgers that I just get to be fortunate enough to be able to talk to you guys about. So long-term effects aside, which we really don't know about, but we don't know about a lot of side effects long-term along many things that we use every day are far outweighed by the um, known benefit of being vaccinated. Thank you, Ms. Hunter. That was a great explanation. I'm sure. Yes. Uh, I'm sure anyone who was on the fence before would uh, would probably be swayed by listening to that. Um, Hope so. Yeah. So uh, thank you for 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 coming on the show and for explaining all that to us. Um, I think that was really informative. And uh, if there's uh, anything else you want to say, we'll give you the the last word. 
Well, first of all, I want to thank all of you for continuing to do this. Um, what I know more than anything else is that fear, ignorance, um, and the ability to sway public opinion is all based on education and communication. The beautiful thing about the university we have is that we can generate an enormous amount of science, but it's individuals like yourselves that actually help communicate that and help educate that to everyone that we're responsible for as a community. So please keep doing this. It's very important. We have to keep repeating it because we are human beings, um, but ultimately, the community needs to vaccinate itself. If only half the community vaccinates itself, the vaccinations don't work. We have to vaccinate 70, 80% of our entire community. And that includes the United States and includes New Jersey and includes this university to get to what everyone understands now is herd immunity so that we can stop vaccinating ourselves every year or every uh, however long these vaccines last. And we think the vaccinations last from an immunogenic point of view for over a year. So we need everyone's cooperation. I know there's a lot of fear out there, but if we continue to educate ourselves and people keep tuning into your programs and programs like this, so please don't stop. Our hope is that more and more people will understand that Rutgers is and does have their best interests at heart and that you can trust our scientific opinion. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.